Hello, my peppermint patties. This is your favorite local cryptid, Ren Martinez. We did promise that we were coming back, and unfortunately, we lied. We did not lie. Okay. We fully intended to come back with a bang. Obviously, you see our brand new logo and our brand new name. We were going to announce everything. Uh, but unfortunately, Ginger is really trying actively to become fully cybernetic uh, and has broken her elbow and sprained her wrist and is unfortunately, um, you know, still recovering. You know, we can rebuild her. We can make her better. But she's still in that process of becoming the Terminator. So unfortunately, we have to continue this hiatus for just a wee bit longer. So we're going to go ahead and repost another episode just to remind you about the glorious content you've been missing. But don't you worry. We will be back. So thank you guys so much. We love you. And uh, we'll be seeing you soon. Peace. This fucking guy. Hello, my oysters on the half shell. Welcome to This Fucking Guy, a podcast about self-care. If self-care is one long scream into the void. Here is where we use expletives and alcohol to emotionally process the creeps, jerks, and dick weasels, then make up the shitty elevator music of our lives. I'm in the mood for love, Ren Martinez. And I'm in the mood for burritos, Ginger Gollop. Honestly, that is love. Yes. Burritos is love. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember, like, Sunday school, all of this God is love. Like, I'm not sure what I believe anymore, but I do believe burritos is love. So, as... Uh, a former Catholic who went through, like, <laughs> one weird confirmation camp, which is the closest that I ever got to, like, youth Conversion camp. therapy? No. Oh. <laughs> no, was, I remember when being a kid as Catholic and, like, all the, like, other Protestant kids would be like, oh, yeah, I went to youth Bible study and youth camp and, like, youth jazz or whatever the heck they were doing. And I'm like, uh, every, every once in a while I go to mass and they speak in Latin and I eat, like, really dry bread. You eat the body of Christ. Yeah. Um. Snacking on some Christ. So there, this was th- through our confirmation thing and there's the, there's, <laughs> it reminds me of God and food. It's, a, I like bananas. I know the mangoes are sweet. I like papayas. Papayas. But nothing can beat that sweet love of God. <laughs> What, what a weird song about what? fruit salads and, and deities. Um, <laughs> so I definitely have sung that to my husband before, and as a Muslim man, he's like, what the fuck, y'all? White I, people are weird. Also, <laughs> I mean, if I had to put a flavor profile on the love of God, I would have gone umami. <laughs> oh, yeah, very earthy. <laughs> Just very earthy. Mm, some savory love of God. Uh, and once again, listeners, we want to welcome Beans! Beans! Beans to the studio, who are very umami-flavored. Yes. yes. Our, oh, what a sweet bean. Our little ambassador of umami, Beans. Um, <laughs> we're going to have to start an Instagram just for all Beans-related content, because mm-hmm. that's the only feedback we get from our listeners, is mm-hmm. just like, everything's fine, work on the sound, bring the dog back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, fair, though. Yeah. Some of you claim that you could not hear uh, Beans clicking last time. We fixed my sound, so you might be able to hear it this time. I don't know. It's fine. It's We're going to hear the dulcet tones. Dulcet it's tones. Like, it's like rain on a tin roof, you Pretty know? Pretty much. 
Right now, he's deeply unhappy, as you can see. Oh, Beans, come here. Hold on. Yeah, snuggle a bean. Keep your penis in, Bean. Last time, that's why you were you were outcasted. Yeah. Like so many state senators. <laughs> there we go. If you take your penis out, things will not go well for you. At least you. you don't have a Snapchat. Yes. Oh. Yes. How weird. Is there anything you want to scream into the void? Uh, yes. Um... So kind of speaking of uh, religion, so I did a, a three-day training for my work, and uh, it was, it had to do with, um, I had to say it a little bit, it's, it has to do with sort of like investigations and specifically like death stuff, like that's a thing that was talked about. And the first day, you know, we do our little icebreaker, and she's like, I want everyone to go around and I want you to say your name and who you work for and what your hobbies are. And do you believe in life after death? (laughs) (laughs) Which is wild to me. (laughs) Wild. And so, like, the first person is, I don't know, like, hi, I'm Debbie and I work here and I love, you know, pottery and there's a heaven, and if you're a good person and believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. It, what? This is a work thing? Like, I am in a blazer, and people are, like, talking about, like, Jesus. What's happening? Um, there were two out-and-proud atheists who straight up were like, nope, you turned to dust. So, you know, one kudos w- to them. One of them being you? No. Um, I was the last person, and I kept debating whether I was going to, like, straight out be like, I'm pagan. And whatever. And I was like, again. We all go to Valhalla if we've died <laughs> mightily in Glorious battle. Odin. I don't, yeah. Um, but uh, I was like, again, this is a work event. I'm here to train with professionals who will be a part of my professional network. And the last thing I'm going to do is after, like, Debbie Sue over here said, yes, I believe in a god. And if you don't believe him, you go to hell. What? <laughs> so I said, literally, Shrug emoji. <laughs> I said that out loud. Just shrug. Shrug emoji. I don't know. Because again, I'm not getting into it. I'm being paid Unless, to be. <laughs> I mean. Oh, I thought you meant you're not getting into the afterlife. I was like, I mean, that's a bold stance to take. You're a pretty decent person. No, 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 no. It's, it's, you meant, I'm not getting, you're into, not getting like, into the topic. The, yeah, I'm not getting into the nuances of my religion. Again, <laughs> with people who are like important folks that I may need to call later to be like, yeah. hey, can I do work with you? Please forget the fact that you think I'm going to hell. Yes. The sea of Deborah's and Tammy's. <laughs> Oh, it was, it was a moment. It was oh, a boy. special moment. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Mamma mia, that's a spicy meatball. I'm stuck in this. Take me <laughs> out of it. So, uh, now that we've gone through that, that array of fruit salad, let's get to the meat of therapy. Mm. The main course. All right, Ginger. It's here. It's early. I have coffee and a notebook and a dog on my lap. And I'm ready to talk about this fucking guy. Well, this fucking guy this week is not so much a fucking guy as it is this fucking thing that we've talked about a million times and not gone into it. Okay. The Southern Strategy! 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a thing. Yeah. Happy Black History Month, everybody. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, I definitely was like, the way to celebrate Black History Month is to promote black voices and call out racists. Yes, and I think that that's a good call, and I think that that's a good call after we recorded my episode last week, and it was so depressing, it is unlistenable. But we'll be putting it up as a Patreon <laughs> episode in case you're curious what that means. Sign up and check it out. Sign up, check it out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we have talked about um, the Southern Strategy. You were calling it the Southern Switch, which led to me Googling some weird stuff. Duff. Southern strategy is is the more technical term, but I've also heard it as a southern southern switch because of the literal switch between like the party yes. platforms. Well, the southern strategy is also the name of like several very ill informed consulting firms. That <laughs> that is indeed a poor choice. Do a quick Google before you get that license. Yeah, that kind of reminds me that like. I, I think it was in high school, I wanted to, you could try to start a charity project, and I wanted to do something where it's like, we, like, did singing and dancing classes for, like, you know, underprivileged youth, and I was like, oh, well, what about, what are traveling singers that go from town to town and sing about things? Oh, no. Oh, let's call it the Minstrel Project. Oh, no. Completely unaware. Oh, of what that no. meant. And of course, that when I talked to like the guidance counselor, she was like, you can't call it that. And of course, I was like, why? why? She's like, well, just don't do it. And so like, I moved on to Spanish club. But <laughs> <laughs> but then later, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, so I'm guessing it's a similar, a similar process yeah. for people naming their uh, consulting firm the Southern Strategy. Yeah. So, the Southern Strategy, in case you couldn't tell by this little intro, um, was an effort by the Republican Party to win over dissatisfied white voters in the Democratic stronghold of the American South. Um, because the American South used to be a Democratic stronghold. And to realign these voters with the GOP, the party abandoned its past support for civil rights and used racially coded language to capitalize on Southern white racial angst. Yeah. Yay. So, as with so many things, the Southern strategy starts with a civil war, or at least reconstruction. Mm Mm-hmm. During the Reconstruction era, the Republican Party built up its base across the South for a little while and for a little while had control in every state except for Virginia. Historian Richard Abbott states that National Republicans always, quote, stressed building their northern base rather than extending their party into the South, and whenever the northern and southern needs conflicted, the latter always lost. So the South was feeling like the redheaded stepchild... And was also still, like, semi-humiliated after the Civil War and had some feelings about that. I mean, the whole redheaded stepchild thing, I kind of get, except for the whole part of, like, you really wanted to keep owning people, so, like, you wanted to break away from the nation. I don't feel bad for them. I'm just saying that's how they felt. (laughs) Oh, Uh, no. Everyone's trying to give us consequences for our actions. Um, Boo. 
But yeah, like in 1868, the uh, Republicans spent only 5% of their, like, funding in the South, Mm. which is geographically larger than 5%, you might be surprised to know. Well, I don't know numbers, but I'll trust you on that. Yep, 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 yep. Ulysses Grant was reelected, which... Southerners was bad were, for everybody. Well, Southerners didn't fucking like it, you might imagine. <laughs> Uh, In a series of compromises, such as the Compromise of 1877, the Republican Party withdrew United States Army forces that had propped up its last three state governors, really makes it feel like super voluntary that they had a stronghold on the South. So they did win the White House and get, like, Rutherford Hayes, you know, Rutherford Hayes. Oh, yes, the the one and only... The one and only Rutherford Hayes, who I always forget... (laughs) Rutherford Hayes is the Nebraska of presidents. I just forget it's there. Like, it has its place. I'm sure it does important things, but I know nothing about it. Yeah, um, I don't. He, what, I feel like that is a man that had, like, a Hulk Hogan mustache. Like, I feel like a, a Rutherford has to have facial hair that is very large and accentuated. It's as likely as anything. (laughs) But after that, all the southern states were under control of Democrats, who decade by decade increased their control over the ex-Confederate states. From 1890 to 1908, the white Democratic legislatures in every southern state enacted new constitutions or amendments with provisions to disenfranchise black and poor voters. Ooh, that's not a great look. It nope. We'll, we will reconstruct by continue continuing to disenfranchise these people. Who would have thought the mm. American tradition? Mm. Provisions required payment of poll taxes, complicated residency, literacy tests, and other requirements which were subjectively applied against black voters. As blacks lost their vote, the Republican Party lost its ability to effectively compete in the South. There was a dramatic drop in voter turnout as these measures took effect and a decline in African-American participation that was enforced for decades in all Southern states. Again, a proud American tradition. The Democratic Party's post-Reconstruction monopoly on the South started breaking up in the 1930s when Democrats began to win the votes of Black people who were hit really hard in the Depression because they liked FDR because... A lot of people liked FDR. It's almost as if he had some good ideas. It's almost as if he had some good ideas and socialism's great. Um, <laughs> I slide that in ninja-like, just so oh, very. It was so smooth, so, I barely noticed. Mm, just that's The Irish aftertaste. cream in my coffee. <laughs> the Irish cream in your coffee. But yeah, the New Deal era saw a handful of Democrats, including Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, taking a vocal stance in favor of civil rights. In 1948, President Truman signed Executive Order 9981. I don't know how you number executive orders. Is it 9,981? Is it 9981? Is it 9981? I think they all start with 99, maybe. Well, that means that there can only be 99 of them. No, no, well, I don't know. I, I have no idea, because I can't, I've done 9,981 <laughs> executive orders. Um, I have no fucking clue how they number that. Um, but yeah, President uh, Truman signed Executive Order 9981 to desegregate the military, and a group of uh, Southern Democrats known as the Dixiecrats lost their fucking minds. Yep. 
and split from uh, the Democratic Party in reaction uh, to the inclusion of a civil rights plank in the party's platform. How dare they? How dare they allow more people to be shot at in our wars? I mean, what an honor. What an honor. Um... This is the same Phyllis Schlafly. This is the same thing Phyllis about Schlafly like, oh, but bullshit. like, will women will be drafted? And oh. my solution is abolish the draft. And they're like, no, 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 that's not what we meant. <laughs> that's that's not what we were asking for. Girl, you wait. Uh, the Dixiecrats nominated Governor Strom Thurmond, <laughs> future subject of this podcast, uh, of South Carolina for president. Thurmond carried four deep South states in the general election, and the main plank of the Dixiecrats, also known as the States Rights Democratic Party, for all of you who are using, like, states <sighs> rights as a thing you still want to be going around, like, that's the... It's the name of the racist party. It's heritage, not hate gender. It's a dry racism. <laughs> but yeah, the main plank of their of the Dixiecrats was maintaining segregation in Jim Crow in the South. After the Dixiecrats didn't win the presidency in 1948, they soon dissolved, but the split lingered. Uh, the white conservative voters of the Deep South remained loyal to the Democratic Party, which had not officially disowned segregation. Eisenhower was elected president in 1952 with strong support from uh, the new middle-class suburban element in the South. Ah, uh, yes. And he appointed a number of Southern Republican supporters as federal judges in the South. They then ordered the desegregation of Southern schools in the 1950s and 60s, which I am very into. I am very into, like, yes, Southern white voters, come to me, come to me. Desegregation, like, yes, (laughs) yes, yes. That is the kind of Southern strategy I could get behind. I absolutely. Um, But let's not give Eisenhower too much credit because five of his 24 appointees did support segregation. Well, and Eisenhower also had, like, other shit, but this wasn't, this wasn't shitty. Major digression, my mom went to kindergarten with uh, Eisenhower's grandson and uh, was almost invited to the White House for his birthday party, but uh, was it Mimi Eisenhower? Mamie Eisenhower? Eisenhower's wife thought that it was improper to have co-ed birthday parties for a fucking (laughs) six-year-old? And so she You don't t- know, they might be doing seven minutes in heaven. Those, like, little first graders. You don't know. They're six. It was the 50s. You got me there, Ginger. So. <laughs> so. It was like six-year-olds in the 50s were having, like, cool make-out parties. Yes. The, like, the with the beatniks. The pre-pubescent <laughs> 1950s orgy scene. Got some cool cats in here. Also got some funky reefer. That reefer's so funky. Um, anyway, <laughs> many states' rights Democrats were attracted to the 1964 campaign of conservative Republican Senator Barry Goldwater of yeah. Arizona. I did not realize how much of a dick Barry Goldwater was before oh, yeah. this episode. I just heard of, like, Goldwater Republicans, and I was like, those means that they was Republicans in the 60s. Yep, yep, yep. And that's not right. 
Goldwater was notably more conservative than previous Republican nominees like Eisenhower. Uh, Goldwater's principal opponent in the primary election was uh, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. All right. Arguably like the Michael Bloomberg of his day. And Rockefeller was widely seen as representing the more moderate pro-civil rights uh, northern wing of the party. So So not Michael Bloomberg. I mean... Still a Republican. Well, again, this is this, but this is the Republicans of the uh, of the we have actual civil rights stuff still talking about Republicans. Well, I know I researched it. That's why I was saying it's not Mike Bloomberg, like Fair. other than the fact that he's rich as hell. Yes. A literal fucking Rockefeller. But yeah, so Goldwater won the primary, and in the 1964 presidential election, he ran a conservative campaign that broadly opposed strong action by the federal government. So, states' rights, states' rights, states' rights, states' rights. You know, it's really interesting that, like, the only time people talk about states' rights is if they want to continue discriminating against other people. Pretty much. It's never like, we want the states' rights to, like desegregate and to like improve voting rights we want states rights to raise taxes on cigarettes right nobody fucking talk nobody cares nobody talks about no, it some people care some people care and they're always, all on the richmond I, times we as a state want to <laughs> it's like no we as a state want to continue disenfranchising mm-hmm. people why are you being so mean yeah although he had um supported all previous federal civil rights legislation, Goldwater decided to oppose the Civil Rights Act and make this a big part of his campaign. So, like, let me jump in here for the first time of many times and say, if you didn't think this was a strategy, it was a strategy. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just something that oopsie-daisy happened. No. It was a strategy. It was a strategy to get elected. Um, to have more political power. In addition to the blah blah federal interference argument, he also trotted out the old chestnut that the Civil Rights Act interfered with the rights of private persons to do businesses or not do business with whomever they choose, even if the choice is based on racial discrimination. Again. (laughs) We want to protect people's rights to continue being bigoted assholes. Yeah. That's that's the that life, liberty, and the pursuit of bigoted assholery. Also, Mike Pence, this is how you sound. <laughs> yep. Hashtag yep. lesbian cakes. <laughs> Hashtag lesbian cakes. Making those lesbian cakes. Yeah, Goldwater may not have called it the Southern Strategy. He actually called it Operation Dixie, uh, which okay. may be worse or may be cuter. I can't decide. Okay. Um, but he definitely implemented um, what later became known as the Southern Strategy. His position appealed to white Southern Democrats, uh, and Goldwater was the first Republican presidential candidate since Reconstruction to win the electoral votes of the Deep South. Outside the South... Goldwater's negative vote on the Civil Rights Act fucked his campaign, and he suffered a landslide defeat. Uh, A Lyndon Johnson ad called Confessions of a Republican, which ran in uh, northern and western states, associated Goldwater with the Klan, which was, like, fair. Legitimate, yeah. 
But at the same time, Johnson's campaign in the Deep South uh, publicized Goldwater's previous support for pre-1964 civil rights legislation. So, uh, not that we didn't already know this, but Lyndon Johnson was kind of a dick. <laughs> Show me a president who wasn't a Show dick. Show me... Uh, it turns out that All my of our s- best presidents were men. <laughs> Christ. Not everyone was on board with Goldwater's racist strategies. Um, he, Like I said, uh, he won five Deep South states, including 87% of the vote in Mississippi. Oh, God. But his blunt racist appeal may have done more harm than good because other than Arizona, which is where he was fucking from, those were the only states he won. He only won six states. I mean, that's you have to keep... I mean, obviously, you want to, like, continue being, have the racist policies to appeal to the racist. Oh, but obviously. that has to be quieter. You know, it has to be, you know, a whisper. Whisper the racism. Don't shout the racism. In the fall of 1964, Strom Thurmond was one of the first conservative Southern Democrats to officially switch to the Republican Party just a couple months after President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law. Passage of the Civil Rights Act caused many black voters to join the Democratic Party, which moved the party and its nominees in a more progressive direction. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of flowing a little bit both ways, or at least like there's a butterfly effect. But yes, speaking of whispering that racism. (laughs) In the 1968 election, Richard Nixon, uh, Roger Stone's favorite dude, uh, saw the cracks in the, uh, what was known as the Solid South, as an opportunity to tap into a group of voters who had historically been beyond the reach of the Republican Party. Um, Before watching Goldwater and running for president, Nixon was actually pro-civil rights and oversaw some advances in desegregation. So that had been a thing. Um, But Nixon's advisors recognized that they couldn't appeal directly to voters on issues of white supremacy or racism. Yep, gotta keep that part quiet. Because it worked so bad for Barry Goldwater. It did. So bad. Six states. (laughs) Out of 50. That's not a lot of states. No. In comparison. It is a minority. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and you know how much he hated minorities. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, they had to code that shit. So White House Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman said that Nixon, quote, emphasized that you had to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognized this while not appearing to. <sighs> Yep, that's where you're going to get all this cool coded language that continues till this day. Yep, yep, yep. Liberal Northern Democrats accused Nixon of pandering to Southern whites, especially with regards to his states' rights in law and order positions, which were widely understood by black leaders to symbolize Southern resistance to civil rights because... That's what it meant. Because that's what it meant. The silent majority of white Southerners that the candidate needed to attract understood that Nixon's call for the restoration of law and order was a dog whistle, signaling his support for an end to protest, marches, and boycotts, while his 
war on drugs played on racialized fears about crime. Nixon also adopted a stance of benign neglect on civil rights enforcement, a message that his advocates, such as Democrat turned to Republican Senator Strong Thurmond, bluntly conveyed to Southern whites on his behalf. As Thurmond put it, if Nixon becomes president, he has promised that he won't enforce the Civil Rights or the Voting Rights Acts stick with him. Isn't that... <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of mind-boggling where it's like, the way you're gonna, like, get people to vote for somebody. So you're gonna, you know, you're, you're gonna talk about somebody as, like, an executive, as, as a leader, as, like, you should vote for this guy. You know where you're gonna vote for him? You know that law we put in place? All those laws? We're gonna ignore them. <laughs> ignore those laws! That's... That's who you should vote for. It's all... The the people who ignore the laws. (laughs) Like, at no point during any of this, also, were they not like, are we the bad guys? We're all wearing black and have skulls for faces. Are we the baddies? (laughs) Nah. 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 Although the phrase Southern strategy is often attributed to Nixon's political strategist, Kevin Phillips, who... Oh, boy, was a piece of work. He didn't originate it, but popularized it. I don't have any information on who originated it, nor do I really care. I'm guessing it was sort of like a... a, a conclu- I think it was a like movement. a media thing. I mean, obviously with the internet it's much easier, but it's sometimes really hard to figure out where these phrases come from. Like, you know, uh, slay, or your favorite yeet, or, you know, fleek. Like, these, these words that get... Fleek. Well, actually, there's a whole story behind that. We're not going to get into it because mm. it's like a thing. Um, but like a lot of these, a lot of these like just get adopted into the lexicon, and it's hard to say exactly where they uh, came from. I know you can't see Bean's face, but as soon as I said mm-hmm. "fleek," he's looking at me with an intensity that's really conveying to me his desire for me to do his eyebrows all fancy. Mm. All I know is that he's literally sitting on my arm and I have to drink my coffee, so we'll figure this out. Yeah. In an interview in a 1970 New York Times article, Phillips stated his analysis based on studies of ethnic voting. So, quote time. From now on, the Republicans are never going to get more than 10 to 20 percent of the Negro vote, and they don't need any more than that. The more Negroes who register as Democrats in the South, the sooner the Negrophobe whites will quit the Democrats and become Republicans. That's where the votes are. Without that prodding from the blacks, the whites will backslide into their old comfortable arrangement with the local Democrats. Yep. Again, it was a strategy. It is. It was an explicit strategy. It, no, no, it apps. I mean, yeah. I mean, they could see again this idea. Like, if we continue like moving in this direction with also disenfranchising this group of voters, we will have a large voting block and be able to win elections because yeah. that's what it ma- that's what matters. So again, Phillips wanted to increase Republican power by exploiting racism in general, not just in the South, but obviously like the South was the biggest and influential area affected. Also, Phillips, real weirdo at best, horrific monster at worst, was explicitly relying on inherent racism among quote Irishmen, Italians, and Poles whose ethnic traits were conservative towards Jews, Negroes, and affluent Yankees to win the day for the South. No, that makes a lot of sense, actually. 
Because, you know, cause part of that is this argument, because I've definitely heard this on, like, you know, like, shitty Reddit threads, where you'll have somebody who's like, yeah, but, like, you you can't say I'm racist, because I'm Irish, and Irish oh, people God. were discriminated well, against. And part of this is, again, like, the definition of white changed to include the Irish and the Polish and, you know, all these folks, because it made more sense politically yeah. to have this large block of whiteness. Well, and as soon as they were in the in-group, they were like, yeah, we're in the in-group. Let's fuck with the out-group. Fuck but, those people! But there's also some of it that rings of like, hey, you know who's dumb and racist? I mean, yeah. So. <laughs> hey, do you I got I got no dog in this fight. And I, I, do appre- like, and I do appreciate, hey, do you hate the Jews? Come on over here. <laughs> We hate black people, too. Come on over. We're going to have a really nice time. Bring your shitty potato salad that has no seasoning. (laughs) As you paraphrase the entire Trump recruitment strategy. In 1970, Nixon nominated Judge G. Harold Carswell of Florida to the Supreme Court. Carswell was a lawyer from North Florida with a mediocre at best record, but Nixon needed a Southerner and strict constructionist to support his Southern strategy of moving the region towards the GOP. Carswell was actually voted down by the liberal bloc in the Senate, causing a backlash that pushed many Southern Democrats into the Republican fold. The long-term result being a realization by both parties that nominations to the Supreme Court could have a major impact on political attitudes in the South. I don't know how they hadn't realized that earlier. Well, I, I, and again, this is not an area that I'm terribly familiar with, so, like, this is a little bit of me talking out of my ass, but, you know, the, the sort of divide politically between Republican and Democrat in the court wasn't quite like that in the previous century. It was a little bit more nuanced than that, but it was really, like, in this in this era of the civil rights and like the you know the fifties and sixties where people were real realizing that the the Supreme Court had to have a political makeup like it was it was more prudent to put specific judges in these court systems mm-hmm. because of the political beliefs rather than like oh their legal interpretations of like bay versus shall or whatever the fuck sure. Which is why you get, like, later, like, the Federalist Society and shit like that. As civil rights grew more accepted through the nation, basing a general election strategy on appeals to states' rights, which, again, some would have believed opposed civil rights laws. Wonder why they would believe that. No, no, no. Um, would have resulted in a national backlash. States' rights became seen as a philosophy that would return local control to... Ra- uh, that would return local control of race relations. That's just a poorly constructed sentence I wrote there. What I mean by that (laughs) is, you know, states would get to decide what they were going to do about race relations rather than there being, like, an egalitarian governing and enforcement strategy about that shit. Yep. Um, You can't tell us not to be racist. I'm careening towards a quote I don't want to read, but I need to read. Okay. Beans is ready. Yeah. Republican strategist Lee Atwater discussed the Southern strategy in a 1981 interview later published in Southern Politics in the 90s. Don't know why they held on to that for a decade, except for, you'll see, um, by Alexander P. Lamas. 
as I get into this, I will have replaced one really offensive word with another word that sounds similar, but isn't offensive. See if you can guess where I did that. And not just auga, not just auga, <laughs> at water. As to the whole Southern strategy that Harry Dent and others put together in 1968, opposition to the Voting Rights Act would have been a central part of keeping the South. Now Reagan doesn't have to do that. All you have to do is keep the South for Reagan to run it in place on the issues he's campaigned for since 1964. And that's fiscal conservatism, balancing the budget, cut taxes, you know, the whole cluster. Interviewer. But the fact is, isn't it, that Reagan does get to the Wallace voter into the racist side of the Wallace voter by doing away with legal services, by cutting down food stamps? At water. Y'all don't quote me on this. You start out in 1954 by saying, ninja, ninja, ninja. By 1968, you can't say ninja. That hurts you. Backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now that you're talking about cutting taxes, and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if it's getting that abstract and that coded, that we are doing Doing away with the racial problem one way or another. You follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying we want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract than Ninja Ninja. Can you guess where I <laughs> replaced a word? Whoo! Whoo! Again, that's speaking the quiet part out loud. Which I appreciate because now it's on the books as having been spoken out loud. Starting with y'all don't quote me on this. Y'all don't quote me. I'm going to fucking quote we, you. Um, because, we, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, it's like we can't actually, you know, say we hate black people. So instead, we're going to say things like states' rights or like, oh, welfare queens or, you know. Oh, girl, I'm getting to it. I, I'm sure you are. But, yeah, we're going to use this language that knows what it means but like but you know in 1980 republican candidate ronald reagan made a much noted appearance in mississippi's neshoba county fair his speech there contained the phrase i believe in states rights and was cited as evidence that the republican party was building upon the southern strategy again Dan Carter explains how Reagan showed them that he could use coded language with the best of them, lambasting welfare queens, busing, and affirmative action as the need arose. During his 1976 and 1980 campaigns, Reagan employed stereotypes of welfare recipients, often invoking the case of a welfare queen with a large house and Cadillac using multiple names to collect over $150,000 in tax-free income. Though Reagan did not overtly mention the race of the welfare queen, he was relying on white people to assume that uh, this person was black. Side note about the welfare queen thing. Uh, this was based on a real woman named Linda Taylor, whose life was bananas. And <laughs> A, 
she committed kidnapping, bigamy, human trafficking, and probably murder, uh, so the welfare thing was a weird choice to focus on. And B, as far as I can tell, Linda Taylor was actually white, um, but had some, shall we say, Rachel Dolezal tendencies. Ah. Uh, yeah. Ah. Uh, I know there's a book about her. There's a book about her. There's a really great dollop episode about her. Um, I may honestly cover her on a future podcast because, oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Beans would be interested, but now he is asleep. At least he's snoring, kind of. Um, so also Reagan's campaign was really where the Southern strategy, like, started engaging with feminism. Hey, hey. Don't worry, y'all. We hate women, too. Okay? Basically. I know we've been really talking about mm. black people and, like, other people of color, but, like, don't you worry about it. So, we're gonna quote very heavily from the Washington Post great article, What We Get Wrong About the Southern Strategy by Angie Maxwell. I am quoting um, directly from it in a couple of places, so I feel the need to, like, cite it actually in the episode, so sorry about that, and also thank you. Um, but you might remember from our recent Phyllis Schlafly episode uh, that both Republicans and Democrats had long supported the Equal Rights Amendment. The 1977 National Women's Conference in Houston, organized to push for ratification, featured former Republican Lady Betty Ford and Democratic First Lady Rosalind Carter. But bipartisan support couldn't shield the ERA from a growing backlash on the right driven by Phyllis Schlafly's organization Stop ERA. Schlafly insisted that the ERA would force women to put their newborns in government-run daycare, serve on the front lines of combat, embrace lesbianism, and enter the workplace. Oh, which that sounds, sounds great. great. That sounds great I to me. I would love to have government-run daycare. I would love to. I would love to embrace <laughs> lesbianism for once. Live your best life. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I don't us. think we're really her audience, though. We really aren't. Um, because the portrayals... The portrayal that she was really driving of, like, here's why this is a problem. This resonated with women trying to live up to the ideals of Southern white womanhood. A phrase so repugnant to me that it makes my butthole tingle. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> this idea... Which had been manufactured in uh, the South's antebellum racial hierarchy, asserted that white women were delicate and fragile and needed constant protection from black men. It cast white supremacy as chivalry while relegating Southern white women to a di to a distant pedestal in the home where they could be taken care of by men. And according to Schlafly, the ERA would destroy Southern white women's way of life. The look on your face right now. <laughs> Is like you smelled some really old chicken. Oh, again, it's just like, like we already again we talked about it in our episode, but we're like this idea, like, but like if we don't, if we have the ERA, women women won't be able to take care of because like we'll have no rights, Phyllis. Phyllis, that's what we're trying to get. Phyllis. 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 God, you know, she just. She's just naked in that kitchen with that apron, making scrambled mm, eggs. Yep. <laughs> Schlafly and her allies attracted an audience of 20,000 for a pro-family counter-rally opposite the National Women's Conference. The Republican establishment took notice, reimagining the party's agenda to secure the support of these Southern white women. In 1980, after 40 years of support for the ERA, the GOP dropped it from its platform. 
Republicans also began championing traditional gender roles, politicizing abortion and gay rights, both of which anti-feminists associated with feminism. So that's like kind of where that came from. Yeah, I mean, again, this 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 whole Southern strategy again is all about like really really adhere to this coded language and pro-family is coded language for anti-women yeah that's what that means or anti-gay or anti-gay but yeah like pro-family like pro-life all those things are meant to say we hate women and gay people and feel like you don't have the right to your own organs but again you can't say that stuff the loud stuff so you so you use these like other other terms Dog whistles, some might say. Dog whistles. We were bumming him out so bad. We didn't even need to whistle at him. Like he heard he heard Reagan's (laughs) dog whistles a mile away. During the 1988 presidential election, George Bush's campaign, uh, HW this time, not W. Okay. Um, HW's campaign ran attack ads against his opponent, Michael Dukakis, about this guy named Willie Horton. Horton was black. He was a convicted murderer who was on a weekend furlough program that Dukakis did not start, but um, supported as governor of Massachusetts. Um, Horton eloped from the furlough program and raped a white woman. So lots of dog whistling going to happen here. Lee Atwater, that guy who said ninja a lot, except for he didn't say ninja, (laughs) and Roger Ailes worked on the campaign. (laughs) They're all here. They're just all here. They're all here. Um, Worked on, I'm surprised that Rory Cohn doesn't show up in this one, honestly. He just pops in for a second in the back. Hey, it's me. Your best pal. Sorry, I'm busy. There's there's a beautiful blonde boy in my pool <laughs> that I need to get back to. But yeah, th- uh, those assholes were working as HW's political strategists. Upon seeing a favorable New Jersey focus group response to the Horton ads, Atwater recognized that an implicit racial appeal could work outside of the southern states. The subsequent ads featured Horton's mugshot and played on fears of black criminals. Atwater said of this strategy, By the time we're finished, they're going to wonder whether Willie Horton is Dukakis's running mate. It's almost as if racism is everywhere across the United States. All over the place. Not just in the South. Not just the Poles. <laughs> Not just Polish people being racist. Yeah, Bush didn't start... The Willie Horton dog whistle, though? And do you know who did? Because you've definitely heard of him. No. Al Gore was the first to use the Willie Horton prison furlough against Dukakis. And like the Bush campaign, would not mention race. The Bush campaign claimed there were they were initially made aware of the Horton issue via the Gore campaign's use of the subject. Bush, again, H.W., uh, initially hesitated to use the Horton campaign strategy, but the campaign saw it as a wedge issue to harm Dukakis, who was struggling against Democratic rival Jesse Jackson. The perception that the Republican Party had served as the vehicle of white supremacy in the South, particularly during the Goldwater campaign and the presidential elections of 1968-1972 made it difficult for the Republican Party to win back the support of black voters in the South in later years. Gee, I wonder the fuck why. (laughs) What do you think? They're goldfish? Like, they don't remember all that shit? It's like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh, God. 
that said, in the mid-1990s, the Republican Party did make some attempts to court African-American voters, believing that the strength of religious values within the Republic It's always the fucking religious Ugh. values, isn't it? Uh, within the Repu- within the African American community, and the growing number of wealthy African Americans would lead this group increasingly to support Republican candidates. Ha 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 ha! Although Kanye West, so who knows? <laughs> I mean, it it does happen. It it is a thing. Wait, wait, wait! You know who might be religious enough to also like hate gay people and shit? Maybe the African-American community? Yeah, it's definitely like, you know, you're right. Like they, It's like, you know, we've been racist this whole time, and we're not going to argue. We, we've been racist this whole time. But, but, have you considered misogyny and homophobia, huh? Mm-hmm. Huh? Have what? you considered? Eh? You know what? Eh? Yeah? <laughs> In general, these efforts did not significantly increase African-American support for the Republican Party. And few African Americans voted for George W. Bush uh, in the 2004 election, although he did attract a higher percentage of the black voters than any GOP candidate since Ronald Reagan, which is not saying a lot. It's not saying a lot, and that was also a re-election during sort of a war thing, so... Um, Professor Thomas Edge argues that the election of President Barack Obama saw a new type of Southern strategy emerge among conservative voters. They used his election as evidence of a post-racial era to deny the need of continued civil rights legislation while simultaneously playing on racial tensions and making him a racial boogeyman. Edge described three parts to the phenomenon, saying, First, according to the arguments, a nation that has the ability to elect a black president is completely free of racism. Second, attempts to continue the remedies enacted after civil rights movement will only result in more racial discord, (laughs) demagoguery, and racism against white Americans. Sorry, that was a comma, not a period. Oh, sorry. There's my snort. There's your snort at the end of it all. And third, these tactics are used side by side with the veiled racism and coded language of the original Southern strategy. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the people who don't believe the Southern strategy is a thing. Like Candace Owens. But I'm not going to talk about her directly because you certainly will will eventually. absolutely talk about Candace Owens. Oh yeah, and my heart can only take so much. Uh, anyway, the term Southern strategy refers primarily to top-down narratives of political realignment of the South. So basically that, like, Republican leaders consciously appeal to many white Southerners' racial grievances in order to gain their support. Um, this view has been questioned by some historians who have presented an alternate an alternative bottom-up narrative, sometimes called the suburban strategy, which is sort of like... It wasn't intentional. It just happened because people are racist and it was a coincidence, Um, which that's fine, but they're wrong, but it's fine, but they're wrong. I mean, it's kind of one of those things where it's like both things can be happening. Yes. Like... 4K no last There has to be, right? Because there was absolutely conscious choices to make these political decisions. Oh, yeah. But also there were people who were just like unconsciously racist and just making these choices. Mm-hmm. Both things happen. Mm. 
In 2005, Republican National Committee Chairman Ken Melman formally apologized to the NAACP for exploiting racial polarization to win elections and ignoring the black vote. He warned that the one-time Republican Southern strategy lives today, but in different forms that play on issues ranging from gay rights to anti-immigration sentiment. So, and I'm appealing directly to the folks out there who will claim that the Southern strategy wasn't a real thing. The Republicans admitted it was a real thing, and I don't know what more you want, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> they wrote it down they and said it, it out down. loud. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I mean, again, but yeah, again, these, these dog whistles, this anti-immigration sentiment is just, again, it's just repackaged racism, Southern strategy. Like, this whole, like... What, what was it in the in the Rush Limbaugh episode where it's like they want the immigrants to come over so that like they can they can use them as a voting block and blah 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 like that's the Southern strategy yeah that's what that is how gross it seems like a lot of analysts um for whatever reason so well not for whatever reason it seems like a lot of analysts saw the clinton white house as proof that the southern strategy was essentially over because there were southerners in both political parties holding major office but given the major political rift that remains the mason dixon line and the continued use of racial dog whistles in republican politics i for one say i think the fuck not trump's campaign can best be understood not as an outlier as the latest manifestation of the Southern strategy. Right. Trump monopolized the appeal of racism to get elected, and it was effective, but, uh, God. Well, I, I think I think what we can, I mean, I think there's something to say about, like, even though we're using the term Southern strategy for a very specific reason because of, like, post-Reconstructionist and, like, the Civil Rights era and, like, all, all that's important, but, like, the Southern strategy is not relegated to the south not anymore it now it just could be called the racist ass strategy right but here here's a statistic the racist ass strategy um (laughs) the best shot i have of like the trump thing and this is both a statistic that i love and hate um is from the new republic which cites 38% of Trump supporters say they wish the South had won the Civil War, and only 24% said they're pleased the North prevailed. Again, it's it's such a weird narrative, and we're going to have to talk about it at some point. But again, this weird, like, heritage, not hate narrative, where it's like, the South will rise again, and like, you know, the war of Northern aggression, but also like, super patriotism and, like, support your police and military? You can't have both. (laughs) Like, you can't be wishing for a civil war to be successful to split your country into two different countries, but then say, support America, the country that won. I don't know. I don't fucking... So I'm gonna finish up with a terrifying quote from that New Republic article. Trump's popularity with voters who are racist and nostalgic for the Confederacy mark him out not as a cancer, but as someone who is cagely updating a script created by the conservative movement and shaped by Republican candidates for decades now. Instead of relying on old, worn-out dog whistles about welfare queens and states' rights, Trump has updated racial paranoia for the 21st century with his talk about banning Muslims and deporting immigrants in building walls that Mexico will pay for. Yep. 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 
You need some self-care? Oh, boy, do I. I uh, mean, this dog on my lap is really helping. It really is helping. I think you probably would have had to do some screaming were it not for the beans were of it all. not for the beans. You could try screaming into the beans. He's just so comfortable and, like, that's really bendy. Like, he's very bendy. He's he's a non-Newtonian liquid mm. more than a dog. <laughs> he's a plasma. He's a plasma. <laughs> um, so I decided to sort of focus on some sleep hygiene tips because I, for one, recently switched around some medications and need some sleep hygiene tips. So two birds, one stone. I'm just real tired. Lull yourself to sleep with some chill podcasts or music. Doing this will help you block out the worries of the day, intrusive thoughts, street noise, and racist dog whistles. Well, depending on what podcast you're listening to... I recommend Myths and Legends. We're too angry. <laughs> Don't listen to us right before bed. No. Myths and Legends is pretty good. Avoid drinks containing caffeine or alcohol if you want to avoid nightmares. Nightmares like the history of race relations in the United States. Exercise can help balance body chemistry and help you sleep. Exercising your right to vote can help balance the Supreme Court and prevent further disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement of marginalized communities. That's a, those are really good tips. Those are excellent tips. I, it helps when I actually write them. <laughs> so that's going to be all for us this week, folks. <laughs> if you like what you're hearing, as well you should, Bean says, follow us on all the social meds. Why are you holding him up to the microphone? You know you're talking for him. I know I'm talking for him, but I'm hoping maybe he'll lick it and we can hear the licks. Are you going to... No. Yeah, we'll have to cover it with chicken sauce. Uh, but basically, you can go to our website, thisfnguypod.com. All of our social meds are thisfnguypod, as oh well God, as the please Patreon. Please stop calling it social meds. That bums me out. I like it. No. It's so cute. No one likes it. <laughs> anyway, this FN guy pod, we're everywhere. Yeah. Uh, as always, I am Ginger Gollop. I'm Ren Martinez. And here's a bonus self-care tip. Make sure you're drinking enough water. About eight glasses a day. And don't be this fucking guy. Peace. Peace. This fucking guy.